Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. My name is Toby Webb and joining me today is Lara Katena of Katena Wines. Uh, so hello Lara and um, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about Katena and the work you do. Of course for those listeners working in wine or really familiar with wine, you will have seen some of Lara's family's products around on shelves around the world, but not everybody will be familiar with the work you do, Lara. So welcome and tell us a little bit about, about what you do. Well, I'm the fourth generation of my family making wine. My great-grandfather, Nicola Catena, came from Italy to Argentina and planted his first Malbec in 1902. So we've been making wine for a long time. However, most of our wine was being sold in Argentina until uh, the late 80s when my father decided that he would make Argentine wines to compete with the best wines of the world. And he discovered this high altitude location, which we call the Adriana Vineyard, but there's this whole region in Argentina that was um, really not widely planted that he discovered that can make these extraordinary age-worthy wines, beautiful wines, and also the Malbec variety. Uh, before my, my father started exporting it from Argentina, it was being pulled out. So he kind of reversed this, this sad trend of, of Malbec pulling out to make Malbec famous. And, you know, then today it's the flagship variety of Argentina. And what I'm particularly proud of is that we created a sustainability code for Argentina that we first created for ourselves because there wasn't a code. And then we worked with Bodegas de Argentina to make it available to all the other wineries in Argentina. And today it's being widely used. And I think it's a very great uh, sustainability code because it's well adapted to our own country. Okay, sticking with practicalities on that then, Laura, where, do you, where does one search for that? What, how does one find that code? Because some of the listeners might want to go and look that up. Well, actually, honestly, you might... Uh, actually, I think it's in the Bodegas de Argentina website, but it's probably only in Spanish. So I'd have to maybe do some research on where you can find it in English. But in Spanish, it's in the Bodegas de Argentina website. And you could also go to our uh, catenainstitute.com website and find information about the code. Okay, great. Well, talking of the Institute, um, tell us about that. But before you do, just give us the headline numbers of Catena. How much wine are you actually making? How, how many hectares? What are the sort of key stats about the business that you're, you'd like to share? Okay, so we have uh, 500 hectares uh, planted in the Uco Valley. But the hectares that go into what we call the Catena Zapata wines, which are Grand Cru wines, are uh, a little under 100. And uh, we also own some vineyards in other provinces, in La Rioja to the north, in Salta, in Patagonia. And uh, that's actually a really interesting uh, development from a sustainability standpoint, because Mendoza, my region today, uh, the number two uh, economical, uh, you know, like um, piece of the economy, the number two uh, producing piece of the economy with jobs and, um, and earnings for our province is wine. And uh, so wine has had an incredibly good effect for people's lives in Mendoza. And we want to take that to some of the other provinces that have great terroirs, which have not yet been discovered for, for high quality wine. So that's something that's very exciting. And we have uh, in the other provinces about another maybe 400 hectares. Uh, so, yeah, those are the numbers. What are, the, what are the headline number of bottles produced? Is that a figure that you talk about or do you, do you prefer not to? We're a family company and we prefer not to. Fair enough. Uh, that's, that's, 
it's completely up to you as a family-owned business. So tell us about the Institute. Um, what does that do? So the Institute I founded in 1995 uh, with the objective of elevating Argentine wine and making sure that our region would be making wines in another 100 to 200 years. And so the first thing we did was study our high altitude, which is this very different kind of terroir because we have more sunlight, we have less water because we use the water from the glaciers and that's going down in volume. And we have this climate of altitude that has lots of different things. For example, as you go higher, it gets cooler. So that's a very unique terroir. And then we have the Malbec variety that had been almost completely abandoned in Europe. And even in Argentina, it was being pulled out. And we uh, wanted to find out how can you make a Malbec that can make a really you know, age-worthy wine, a wine of complexity, a wine of individual place. And so that's why I started the Institute. And then today, a lot of the work of the Institute also has to do with sustainability, with how do we use less water, with preserving Massal selections of Malbec. Malbec is a variety that, as I said before, almost disappeared in Europe, but the genetic diversity of Malbec it has been preserved in Argentina because Argentina, uh, you know, one good thing of being an isolated country because you have a bad economy is that you don't get a lot of imports so, or exports. So during those hundred years after Phylloxera, the genetic uh, diversity of Malbec was propagated in Argentina. So we have this, this kind of uh, genetic uh, gem of Malbec, very diverse, that is only present in Argentina. And we're preserving it for the future because we think with climate change, preserving some of this genetic diversity will be important. And then we do a lot of work also around biodiversity, water usage, uh, a lot of the things that have to do with sustainability. Certainly, genetic diversity is seen as a, a key tool in the toolbox to fight climate change. And it's so interesting to see Malbec making a comeback now into Europe as one of those hardier grapes in the face of uh, adaptation needs. So yes, it, it could be a bit like, um, uh, I guess that the, the, the cure for phylloxera or, or the grafting came from the US, didn't it? Uh, and perhaps, it, although in that case, of course, so did phylloxera. <laughs> um, in, the, in, in the case of uh, Malbec, you may actually be able to um, to really assist the, the new, the old world as, as well as elsewhere in the world in, in adapting to climate change. And of course, you guys love Malbec so much that you've written a new book about it. So um, tell, us, tell us about the book. What's, what's that all about? Yes, the book is called Malbec Mon Amour. Uh, it's in English, Spanish and Portuguese. And uh, it's a book about the history of Malbec and how it became so famous and almost went extinct twice, once in France and once in Argentina. And then the, the second part of the book is about the different regions of Malbec and the flavors of Malbec in the different regions of Argentina. And, you know, for a while we were thinking about the book, but we weren't sure there was a market for a book about one single variety. But then we said, hey, we need the world to know that this variety is 2000 years old. It's like dark chocolate. It's not going anywhere because it tastes good. And then we also need to show to people that it can have really diverse flavors depending on which soil, which climate, which altitude it grows in, kind of like Pinot Noir. I think that, you know, uh, Pinot Noir and Terroir are, you know, one is the other, you know, they're, they're interconnected. And I don't know that people understand that there's a variety like Malbec that can have as different a flavor in different areas uh, of Mendoza as a Pinot Noir in Burgundy in different. Amazing study that 
has been recognized from the U.S. as the most extensive terroir study ever done, where we showed that Malbec from different parts of Mendoza had different chemical profiles. And, you know, that's really important because it shows that Malbec can have this diversity and it tells consumers, hey, you know, you don't know everything about Malbec. Why don't you go and taste Malbec from different parts? And, and I think that's one of the most exciting things about wine itself is that, you know, you could have, uh, you know, really a different, 10 different wines every day of your life. And, you know, you would be having less than 1% of the wines of the world. And, and that's what's fun about wine. Um, and so, yeah, all this research that we've done in the Institute to do with the Malbec variety, genetic diversity, the altitude, um, this is the work of the Institute. And honestly, you cannot do this kind of research without a dedicated research team. And, you know, Toby, you and I have talked a lot about how I think that every winery, no matter the size, we'll need to have a background in research in the future because to understand the complexities of climate change, of which varieties you should plant, um, which clones, which massage selections, everything you need to do in your vineyard, you will not be able to apply in Argentina what they do in Burgundy or Bordeaux because you have a different soil, a different climate. So I think that every winery will need to have this like mini research team studying their own vineyard their own varieties and their own climate yes of course at the same time we need to work out how we can collaborate and share all the things that we do have in common around the world and, and i guess that's one of the missions of the sustainable wine roundtable which um you have generously been a founding member of um why apart from the collaboration angle more generally which is a hugely overused and abused word um, um, why have you joined swr as a, as a founding member what do you want us to do yeah well i mean i was just saying how every winery no matter the size should have some research going on and that's what the sustainable wine roundtable is so helpful for so we are part of the vineyard team uh where there's you know, one person from our team, there's people from France, from Chile, from China, I think even, uh, all over Europe, the Americas. And for our person that manages our vineyards to be able to talk to all these other experts and find out what their experience is in the vineyard with different kind of treatments, uh, you know, how did they manage to get people to stop using pesticides? What did they do to, when you convert to organic, not have your yields come down, things like that, to be able to ask that question to all these people, even if your solution is going to be local, finding out what other people um, did to get to a better result is 20 years of work. And, you know, Luis, who is on, on the panel uh, in the group, the work group at Sustainable Wine Roundtable, you know, he tells me that in three months of having a couple of meetings, he's answered so many questions. So I think that collaboration, yes, maybe it's overused, but in this case is essential and it will save us time and we don't have time. That's the thing. You know, if we had, you know, far hundred years, like the Cistercian monks to figure things out, we'd be fine, but we don't have 400 years. And that's where if we are not learning from each other, um, we will have some regions stay behind and nobody wants that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we certainly see our, our core role in um, as, as helping join those dots and connecting the right people and then bringing in the lessons and learnings from other areas of agriculture where there's a strange there's a strange sort of situation there where 
the products don't sell for the same amount of money, but they're sold at such higher volumes with, through such larger companies that there's an awful lot of R&D money going in to, for all sorts of areas. And that's where we hope we can bring in uh, lessons from other areas of agriculture because there is this big silo problem in supply chains where everybody thinks their crop is completely unique and you know doesn't necessarily look outside of their particular area and, and that's where we think we can play a role um so we're looking forward to doing that with you and others um i, I wanted to ask you about about water because that's linked to the collaboration and knowledge sharing angle you and i before we turned on the tape we we're just talking about Jancis robinson and her fabulous newsletter that we uh, need to retire to actually read all of every week because it's so comprehensive and um, and one of the pieces she just published was uh, a piece from, I think, an Israeli member, um, Master of Wine, who basically said, Europe, get ready for irrigation because you're going to have no choice. Now, that may be the case, but if it is the case, that's going to be huge because uh, water and competition for water is a huge topic and one that you guys have been dealing with for a long time in a water stressed high altitude region so um i'm not expecting you to solve all the world's water problems here right now lara but you know what have you learned about water use and conservation that you think our listeners could could take something yes well one of the things that i first learned was that if you talk to people in bordeaux or in in places where irrigation is not allowed and you say you do irrigation, they think, oh, that's crap wine because they're just flooding and you know, all the wine's gonna taste the same. Well, we have such little water that if we didn't have some irrigation, the vines would die. And our canals were established by the native peoples of Argentina. And if it weren't for them, we would not have wine in Mendoza today. And what they taught us is not only, um, you know, they created these canals, but they taught the art of irrigation, which is something that you don't do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You teach people how to look at the vine and understand when it needs a little more water. And it's the glacier water, which is a problem in itself because the glaciers are becoming reduced. And so the underground water is also lower, but we're still able to farm and we're actually working on a lot of research, including the government on how we can reduce water use or water wastage. Uh, but the reality is that people are creating city, cities and they need water and we compete with them. And so the only one who can make a decision about water is the government. And actually the government in Mendoza is no longer giving water permits. And that's a good thing. So that's you know, the situation that has you know, a mix of, of farming and politics. But in terms of your question that you asked, um, about, about Europe, I mean, the reality is that our underground water is 100 meters down. So we have to pump it up or we have to get it from the glaciers. There are these rivers that come down. Uh, in Europe right now, they have underground water that the vines can access. So the situation is actually that they have a lot more water to access than we do. So the whole comment about if you're irrigating, your wine is crap is ridiculous because they're two very different situations. You know, if we don't use water, we don't have vines. And we have shown in this big study I was telling you about that we have incredible differences in flavor in areas that get some irrigation. So that's one thing is to get out of your head that if you irrigate, your wine can be good. In fact, with irrigation, you can do controlled water stress, which reduces yields and which gives you high quality. So understanding irrigation can lead to great quality. Now, the Israelis know 
more about irrigation than anybody in the world because they created uh, drip irrigation, which is what today we use at Catena and all our vineyards. And it uses half as much water as uh, flood irrigation. In Argentina, not everybody's using drip irrigation. And we think that's a very important thing that needs to happen. Everybody needs to do drip irrigation because that would significantly reduce the amount of water used, but in all farming, in also other crops. Um, but you know, that requires investment. And I was, so I was telling you before, Toby, when you have a country with 60% inflation, you don't borrow money. So these are some of the, the structural issues we have in, in Argentina, that's the developing country that, you know, we, until we solve some of these issues, it's going to be very hard to make these big investments. Um, but the, you know, what, what this, this uh, is, Israeli producer said is, is, a, is a true thing, is that as there's less water, um, we will need to understand very well how much water we put in. And we're doing this really interesting research um, that is um, putting the, the irrigation um, little tube underground. And what's amazing about that is that it's not only great for water because you're not spilling water, it reduces the, the growth of the cover crops, which the cover crops, you need them there for nitrogen fixing and uh, for carbon uh, fixing in the soil. And also, um, yeah, for just keeping the vineyard more healthy and more biodiverse. But if you reduce the water, then they don't grow. And then you don't have to have a tractor that uses gasoline uh, cutting it. So, you know, there's your lower carbon emissions and uh, you use less water. So we're doing this research that if it works, it could be just an extraordinary solution for producers all over the world who are using drip irrigation. So, um, you know, to me, the, the future is a future with less water. We all know that. I think there will be many regions that don't irrigate now that will have to. And I think that all this research that's happening in countries where already we use irrigation will be very useful. And I can't wait for the day where somebody in Bordeaux is asking me for advice on this. <laughs> well, I mean, I think there are parts of Europe that will be asking you quite quickly. I mean, I remember seeing a producer from uh, Rioja um, Alta saying, you know, we're, we're running out of water. They've got probably a more similar situation to you than than a lot of the rest of France does. I met a Portuguese producer. To your point about irrigated wine, you know, isn't isn't bad. Mouchal, which is my favourite Portuguese wine, absolutely wonderful finesse, elegance, amazing wine made by Ian Richardson, uh, who I did a podcast with about six months ago, and um, he said something that really threw me. He said. Um, Drip irrigation is obviously great, but one of the things he's realized is if he floods his vineyard once a year with a certain amount of water, so not the, the amount you might use if you were doing it constantly, he said in the podcast that once a year he, he floods his vineyard um, and that trains the, but then it doesn't give it any more water. And that trains the vines to go deeper and search for water sources they might not have searched for. And I'd never heard anyone say that before. Um, but he's pretty convinced that's that's a way in which he can avoid using more water than necessary. I mean, obviously it has limitations, but it just goes to show there's so much that many of us don't know about what's possible. And I think one of the things we want to do at the roundtable in working with organizations like yours is try and share those stories because you might have someone who says, oh, well, I've, everything else I've tried is problematic. I'll, I've heard that story. I'll try it over here and it could work. So this is, this is where I think there's a real need for experimentation and, and sharing. Um, 
Yeah, but there's also need for serious experimentation because um, there, a lot of people in Argentina believe in flooding once a year and we will sometimes do it so that you wash away some salts that can accumulate in the soil. And we've done some research on that, but I think it is important to actually take one field and do this flood thing, take another one and not do it. And then really see, you know, did it, did what I thought was going to happen with the root systems, like measure the roots, see if they really went deeper and, and make sure that, that what you're saying is true. And I think that it's not that hard to do basic research, well-controlled research. Um, and yeah, I would like to see uh, this, this producer in Portugal do that research and be, and be sure that, that um, maybe there's some other reason why the flood irrigation causes this. But anyhow. Yeah, I mean, it all needs lots of research, doesn't it? Because there's complex variables. There could be a certain reason and certainly why something works. Um, and the example I always think of to your earlier point about, about diversity is you know, I fell in love with, with Bandol wines about 12, 15 years ago. And I, I used to live near there and I used to go there and, and the soils used to completely blow my mind that, you know, you'd have red clay and then and there'd be white limestone <laughs> within about 100 metres of each other. And they're all growing Movedra. And one, one produces Movedra is the biggest, most bullish, brutal wine you've ever had. And the one 100 yards away is, is more like Pinot Noir. Um, all with a high percentage of the same grape. Um, so I was just very curious. Um, I never hear about Movedra in the Argentine context. I know I know they're making some great Movedra in Australia now at high altitudes. Is there a reason why it's never taken off? Does it not work? You know, there is some Movedra plant in Argentina. There's Grenache. There are some uh, uh, Rome varieties. I also love Bandol, by the way. And, and I've noticed the same thing. Some like really high alcohol ones, some that taste like Pinot Noir. That's what I love about it. Um, there's, I've, I've had a really great rosé from Mandol. Um, so um, I think that the, the answer to that is, yes, Mouvedre could do really well in Argentina, but when you're planting a variety, you have to be sure you're going to be able to sell it. And so, um, you know, we sell Malbec really well. We sell um, Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay. We have Bonarda, which is um, actually, I think, a variety that has some of that sort of capacity to make either a really rich wine or a lighter wine that Bandol has. And Bonarda is actually hard to sell. The, the people uh, in the trade love it, but then when they try to sell it to a consumer, they can't sell it. So I actually think that one of the ways to preserve the variety of uh, vines out there and the variety of types of wine is to uh, talk about these wines, like you're talking about Bandol right now, uh, so the consumers get interested and then it's thanks to consumer that we can preserve things because in the end if you can't sell the wine you cannot plant the vineyard and preserve something so that's you know the great story of argentina is that it allowed us to preserve malbec because consumers um, tasted it and loved it and um so yeah my answer to your question is if you find a lot of people who want to drink Mouvedre from argentina uh, we'll plant it yeah, I think I think even um, even the producers in Bandol have struggled historically to sell it, and it's the, the, the place <laughs> they say in Europe is the one place you can actually ripen it properly. I mean, that's been great for me because I can still buy Domaine Tompier twenty nineteen at twenty two. There you go. I bottle. love Domaine Tompier. Twenty two euros a bottle, and it's the greatest value bottle of wine in the world, as far as I'm concerned. But of course, um, 
whilst Tompier does very well, there are lots of smaller producers, I think there are about 70 in total in, in Bandol, who really are struggling um, because the wines are 14, 15, 15 euros a bottle. And that's a challenge, as we know. Um, so let's talk about selling wine a bit, Laura. I mean, in one of our previous conversations, we had talked about bottle weight and packaging. And of course, Argentine wine and some of the New World wines get a bit of a hard time reputationally these days for having heavy glass. Um, but uh, but some producers have said to us that you know when they put them in lighter glass, some of the middlemen or middle people don't necessarily think they can sell them or want to buy them. So what are the sort of pressures and challenges and opportunities that you're seeing around around glass and, and marketing Malbec in, in lighter yeah. glass? Yeah, I mean we're in a in a in a really uh, good position in Argentina in that we have our own glass uh, producing factories that are actually uh, really good. Um, with good equipment and also Chile has important glass producers. So we have a regional glass production. A lot of other parts of the world, like right now, the US is importing so much glass from Europe. So there it's it's actually terrible because you're having the, the wine being shipped twice. You know, if, if you then export the wine to back to Europe, you're you're having the double journey. And actually this was a situation in Argentina about 20 years well, maybe closer to 30 years ago, there was still a lot of um, bottle, bottles being imported from Europe because the Argentine producers were not making really beautiful bottles. So in terms of your question about uh, glass weight, we are very aware of this. And so we started working with the glass manufacturers about 20 years ago to produce uh, lighter weight bottles. And today, I would say that probably 90% of Argentine wine is in bottles that are 30 to 40% lighter than they were 20 years ago. So the technology for lighter glass has advanced a lot. And for our winery, like I, I can't remember the statistic, but it's like, I don't know, millions and millions of millions of carbon emissions saved by you know a reduction in about 30% overall in glass weight for all our bottles. So that's, you know, the wines that sell for, you know, I don't know, 10 uh, pounds, 20 pounds. Then you've got the, you know, the 50, 60 pound and above wines. Um, and some of those we have in lighter bottles. Like we have a brand called Catena Alta that's in a 500 um, gram bottle, you know, which is, you know, a nice, it's not 350, like the really ultra light, but 500 is still pretty light. Um, and then we have some other wines that are in somewhat heavier bottles, which is, you know, a, a much smaller percentage of what we sell. Um, you know, currently I can't, I haven't been able to see really beautiful bottles uh, that are super light. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, maybe some burgundy producers are using these lighter bottles and they're doing well with it, but they're a burgundy producer. You know, so they have already, um, you know, a region that commands a high premium. Uh, I we're actively actually reducing the weight of the of our most expensive wine bottles, and we've reduced those in about twenty percent already. But they're still, you know, in like the, the eight hundred um, weight, some of them, eight hundred uh, um, grams. And so, you know, currently, in terms of a carbon footprint our reduction has been monumental and for the rest of Argentina as well, because the glass manufacturers are working on that. 
Um, the next phase is working on a really beautiful bottle that is lighter for the, the more expensive wines. And I think more work can be done. Currently, I tell you, it's even hard to get a bottle at all produced because um, in Argentina, we're having a hard time with a lot of the components that are imported for the bottles that are for making the bottles because we're having a, a hard time with the government letting people buy imports. Like this is something that people probably don't know about Argentina, that the government has such a few dollars that they are restricting payments outside of Argentina. So actually our current problem is not even the weight of the bottles, is actually getting any bottles at all. So, um, so I think that there's more work to be done, but I think that Argentina, yeah, I agree with you that, that uh, if people really knew the data, you know, the reduction in, in glass weight has been monumental over the last 20 years. Uh, but I do think it's more work to be done. And I think that, you know, I asked the same question about perfume uh, packaging, you know, like if a perfume packaging comes in a really flimsy you know, not super interesting glass, I don't know if people will buy it. And so I think that before, like the really high end wines can change those bottles, we need the consumer to really be thinking that way. And I don't think we've gotten there yet. And honestly, uh, you know, I, I would say the US overall has heavier bottles than Argentina. And uh, there isn't such a change in consciousness in the US, there's more in Europe, in Europe, there's more consciousness of consumers. So I think that there has to be a lot more work done in, in consumers saying, hey, you know, I'm done with my pretty perfume bottle. I now want, you know, I don't know, a plastic bottle. I don't know if the world is ready for that yet. Yeah, I think that it's tough with, with luxury products, isn't it? But I guess most wine sold in the world is consumed within a year, 18 months. Most of that wine is pretty cheap. Um, could you see a time where, you know, let's say... Uh, $8, $10 bottle of wine and below just can't really justifiably be in glass anymore from a climate point of view. Um, you see that as, as happening? I think I think that that's a possibility. I think wine that definitely has to be confused in the first year. Uh, I, I see that. I see. I think if, if we can uh, talk to the consumers, to the, the you know, the, the wine uh, buyers that are selling the wine, you know, from all kinds of, you know, wine shops to supermarkets. If, if, if we do a lot of education, I think that some of those wines could be in something other than glass. Absolutely. Yeah. If you go to the, um, the Alco monopoly shops in, in Finland and look at their alternative packaging, it's the first lineup of alternative packaging for wine I've seen where you actually want to buy the product. <laughs> um, so it can be done. We just need to take the consumer marketing now so we have from other products and apply it to wine within a set category. But I, I'm developing a theory that we should stop talking about wine as a monolithic entity when we talk about packaging. We should be talking about wine as sort of say 10, 15 euros or dollars a bottle and below. Then there's a middle category for me and then there's a kind of luxury category. And it's different for all of them, I think. And, and it's the same for other industries. I mean, look at the clothing industry. So, you know, at the super high end, there's not a lot of people talking about, you know, where, you know, are they being sustainable? Because most people are not buying a ton of super high end clothes. They're buying one thing. And that's the most sustainable way to be is to, you know, um, do high quality and not so much volume. And, and in, in fact, for wine, it is the way of the future because it's healthier to drink less wine. And so my proposition is drink less wine of better quality. And you see at the lower end of the clothing industry, 
that's where people are really concerned about this, you know, maniacal pur purchase of like cheap clothing all the time, you know, changing the fashions. That is not sustainable. That has to change. It would be better for people to buy fewer clothes of higher quality and pay more for it, but use it for longer. That would be the most sustainable way. And I think that, that wine is sort of no different than other things where you have, you know, the, the more volume, which is, you know, I think wine in moderation a couple of times a week. And it's fantastic. And I think that there should be versions of less expensive wine and more expensive wine. Not everybody can afford more expensive wine. But I think that the way of the future should be uh, less, but of better quality. Um, you know, I think one topic that concerns me is the whole topic around plastic, you know, and you have pet bottles that are highly recyclable, very sustainable. But I think that there's a lot of consumers where the anti-plastic lobby is so strong that if that it, it's for a producer, it's a real dilemma because, um, you know, any kind of plastic is perceived as bad, but from a sustainability standpoint and recycling standpoint, actually, if people don't throw the plastic in the oceans, plastic is very good and very recyclable. So I think that it is the government's job in many of these countries to have campaigns where they educate the consumer. And I think that's happening in some countries, but, but not in enough countries. Yes, the cultural change aspect is one of the most important areas of any conversation about sustainability, whether that's around bottle weight or whether that's around unnecessary chemical use by smallholder farmers or, or whatever. People do things because they used to do them or they think they used to be done that way. I, I recently was in um, in Arles with my, my colleague Tom Outram. We were attending the Living Soils Forum that Murray Hennessy put on, which was a brilliant, brilliant event. Um, and Tom and I went into this old, went to this wine shop in, in Old Arles, no, in Aix, sorry, Old Town of Aix. And the, the, the guy who ran it had his grandfather's off-year Petit Chateau Bordeaux collection from the 70s and 80s in the corner. And we've all heard that story, you know, his granddad's wines. So I immediately got very excited and took pictures and sent to all my friends and said, look at this. And he was selling them all for 20, 30 euros a bottle. And all my friends said, oh, we've all heard this story before. This wine will be rubbish. There's no way in 1981, Cru Bourgeois could be drinkable now. So we went and bought a whole range of them. And guess what? Most of them, incredibly drinkable, beautiful wines, but um, because they've been beautifully well kept. Um, but the point of the story is that um, when we had a number of empty bottles, probably more than we should over a few days, you could feel the weight of these things. They were not heavy bottles and they had lasted. So you had a 1981 Cru Bourgeois in probably a 400 gram, 450 gram bottle and it had been looked after properly and it was just fine. And we said, Tom and I sat there and we said, actually, this is a really interesting example of, of how cultural change is needed because in, clearly in the 80s in Cru Bourgeois, they didn't feel the need to have a 900 gram bottle and the wine is lasting because it's been well kept. So it's just an example, I suppose, I think. That's how, a great story. Yeah. yeah. Just an example of how people do things because traditions emerge, what we think of as traditions seem to emerge very fast. Uh, and, and actually they're not that old, a lot of them. And yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a lot to be done there to understand how those things happen. I mean, look at this, like how our lives have changed with COVID. I mean, everybody's life has changed in a relatively short time. So I think cultural change is a big part of what we need to do for sustainability, not just in wine. And I think the young people are leading this movement. I think that we now need to do the research so that 
you know, we're able to make the changes and pay for them, which is important because in the end, you know, as I was telling you before, with the, the uh, complex situation in Argentina with the bad exchange rate that we get from the government, uh, small producers are, are, are the worst off, uh, you know, volume wine pe people are the worst off. And I think that, um, you know, we need to find ways to preserve the traditions behind wine, um, you know, the, the artisanal way of winemaking. And for that to happen, you know, we're going to need help from everybody. We're going to need to hear from other producers, help from the government. Um, you know, we're going to have to collaborate within a region, which is what we're doing with our sustainability code that we created. We now have work groups with other producers, which we didn't have before. So I think um, there is a bright future, but um, uh, we have to have, you know, a space of our brain and of our time that is working on this every day. I think that's true. And I think for the marginal producers in wine, there's a lot to be learned from from Italy with ecotourism. And I've been to some fabulous wineries there where they, you know, they, of course, they luckily they have olive oil. But the diversification of small farms into areas that encourage visitors and have multiple crops, perhaps one core cash crop is, is a really important area where I, I guess it won't work for everybody, but it, it, it's it's one area we want to explore through the sustainable wine round table. I'll tell you an interesting statistic. Do you know that there is more uh, foreign revenue into Mendoza from tourism than from actual sales of Argentine wine, exports of Argentine wines? Can you believe that number? I, I would not believe that number unless yes. you sounded so. No, I, sure it, about it, it was <laughs> the wines of Argentina did a research on this, and we have a lot of tourism from Brazil because we're to the south, and you know they don't have a like as important a wine region as we do because of the climate. Uh, so we have just a, a huge tourism from Brazil that keeps on multiplying. And, you know, with the whole uh, pandemic, it was even stronger because, you know, there was one of the few places that Brazilians could go to that was close by. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly important for the region and so many jobs. Um, and for that to, to be maintained, you know, we need to maintain the culture. Yeah, that heritage part is, I think, underexplored. Um, so, look, Lara, we could talk all day, um, but um, but we, we probably shouldn't for the sake of the listeners. This this is not a four-hour podcast, although it could easily be. But I have one more question for you before we close. We'll do this again soon where we'll talk about the other things. I, I've always wanted to ask someone like you this question. About 15 years ago, I read a book called The Vineyard at the End of the World, uh, I can't remember the name of the author. He's a friend of a friend of mine. Ian Mount. Ian Mount, that's right. And it, uh, you probably know what I'm going to ask. In the book, I think, if I remember correctly, he suggests or infers that one of the reasons for Argentina's independence from Spain at the time was the merchants of Mendoza or the wine producers funding the revolution to stop the Spanish dumping cheap Tempranillo on the Buenos Aires wine market. I'm pretty sure that's in the book or some inference that that might be the case. Yes, I, I remember something around that. Um, you know, there's actually all these stories about how, you know, the Spanish king outlawed winemaking in, in, in South America, but the producers in Argentina didn't listen to him and did their own thing. And I think the, the Spanish made a really big mistake, pissing off. Oh, there, there's my dog again. One second. Okay, one second. Just take Nala, Nala, vení. Uh, so the Spanish made a big mistake uh, trying to push their wine 
on the Argentines and trying to, you know, create laws for wine. And people don't like to have their wine controlled by others. And um, I don't know if that story is true, but it sounds like a classic Argentine story. <laughs> yeah, well, there's no need to ruin a good story by introducing truth into it, as they say sometimes. But I mean, as ever, these things are complex, but there's, um, you can absolutely see, a, you know, you can see why that could be part of the story, can't you? Um, fascinating. Well, Lara, thank you so much for your time. Um, we'll do this again soon and talk about all the things we haven't spoken about on this podcast that we were going Wonderful. to. Wonderful. Um, and thank you for supporting the Sustainable Wine Roundtable and for the great work you do. And uh, we shall be in touch soon. And listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, there are plenty more on the Sustainable Wine website, um, or you can sign up for them if you haven't already by searching for Sustainable Wine on any credible podcast app. Uh, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.